This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Welcome to the Trumpet's weekly review of all the important news. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, standing in for your usual host, Mr. Joel Hilliker. And with me is our panel. Here in the studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, we have Andrew Miller. Hello. And Rufaro Manyepa. Hello. From our office in the UK is Mr. Richard Palmer. Good afternoon. And from our office in Jerusalem, Israel, is Brent Noctegal. Thanks for having me. Well, ever since Russia began its brutal war against Ukraine, the leadership of China has been doing a bit of a balancing act. The Chinese supported Russia in the United Nations and also with kind of a disinformation campaign, but they've refrained from giving Russia the full backing and the full military support that the Russians had asked for for this war. And uh, this gave rise to some hope among Westerners that China might actually break ties with Russia. So there's been uh, some quiet optimism about that. But on Wednesday, the leaders of Russia and China had a conversation that threw cold water on that optimism. For this, we'll go to Rafaro Manyepa. That's right. Uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping held a phone call with Vladimir Putin this week in which uh, President Xi praised the, quote, good momentum of development, unquote, between Russia and China in the face of global turmoil and challenges. And according to Chinese Central Television, the state broadcaster, President Xi said uh, China is willing to continue to offer mutual support to Russia on issues concerning core interests and major concerns such as sovereignty and security. Now, the Ukraine war is 16 weeks old. You know, in the time since it started, numerous individuals, corporations and countries have abandoned Russia. Hashtag I stand with Ukraine has been posted with nearly every anti-Russia tweet. And in, in the exodus of support for Russia, so many people, as you said, have been hopeful and, and anxiously awaiting the day that China would also join that throng that's abandoning Russia. Instead, in this phone call they had on Wednesday, China and Russia basically agreed to expand co cooperation in energy, finance, industry, transport, and more as they agreed to jointly engage the global economy and, and more significantly, even sanctions that Russia is under together. Now, throughout this entire crisis, uh, China has kept its cards pretty close to its chest. It hasn't explicitly made any statements uh, of support for Russia, and, and that's what caused a lot in the West to be hopeful for a break in the relationship. But it never fully condemned Russia either. You know, it never, it never came out and said anything against it. So there was a lot of ambiguity about where China stands. Uh, but now it's showing very clearly where it stands. This is China basically saying to Russia, we're going to we're going to help you get out of this. We don't care what you've done. We promised before that there are no limits to our relationship. Uh, we're partners, we're allies, and we're not going to back up on that. You know, and it's very similar to what happened in 2014, actually, you know, when everyone came out and condemned Russia after they annexed Ukraine, you know, China did it. You know, China stood by Russia. In fact, their relationship actually got a lot closer after that happened. 
Um, they increased cooperation. And for a few years now, Russia has been China's largest trading partner and closest friend. And it doesn't look like that's something that's going to change. So in strictly economic terms, uh, it doesn't really make sense for China to remain, you know, steadfastly loyal to Russia, since that could jeopardize its trade relationships with the U.S. and with Europe. Right. Um, and those are relationships, of course, that China's economic growth is entirely dependent on. So what do you think is overriding those concerns for China and making it stick with Russia, kind of despite it being an apparently unwise decision? Right. And many, many analysts because of that have been expecting for china to break from russia um that it would it would turn on russia and if something like that did happen it probably would be uh, really bad for russia's economy it probably would would devastate it um but you know realistically that won't happen for for quite a few reasons one one of which is that you know these two co countries are really similar in their aims and goals and makeup you know they're both communist authoritarian countries with strongman rulers. They both have a united vision of a de-Americanized, de-dollarized world. You know, they have a vision of global dominance. Their partnership is predicated on collaborating to achieve these aims. And so these similarities in their relationship is something that the Trumpet has been watching uh, very keenly for decades. And uh, it's something that you know, even even our predecessor, the plain truth uh, was talking about back in December 1959. Here's what the plain truth wrote. It said China's constant dream for centuries has been ultimate world conquest. China knows, uh, however, that in this highly industrialized age, she can accomplish this dream only as an ally of Russia. China is now beginning to devour the rest of Asia with Russia's secret military backing. We've seen this, you know, this military, economic, and industrial relationship blossom precisely as it was described in The Plain Truth. We have a free booklet that we will link to in the show notes for today's episode. It's called Russia and China in Prophecy. It goes through that Plain Truth issue, uh, the December 1959 uh, issue that, that Rafaro just quoted there. We also will leave a link in our show notes to a new article that's up on thetrumpet.com right now. It's called Chinese Leader Affirms Commitment to Russia Despite Ukraine Issue. So we'll leave links to both of those. And thanks very much for that, Rafaro. For this next story, we'll take a look at the dynamic between the European Union and the United Kingdom for a sobering look at just how much power the EU still has over post-Brexit Britain. For this, we'll go to Richard Palmer. Yes, we've heard a lot about immigration in America, all the migrants pouring across the southern border. We have our own bit of a migrant crisis here in the UK, and it's a crisis where a couple of major trends overlap, where you see both this problem with immigration and then an inability to deal with it, largely because of consequences still left over from Britain's membership of the European Union. So we have this problem with uh, sometimes in the case of hundreds a day of migrants coming across the English Channel, uh, often in small dinghies. France is quite happy to help them do that, to escort them into British waters and then leave the Royal Navy and Coast Guard to try and pick them up. Uh, and then, of course, there's just been an ongoing mass immigration going back years and years and years, just like there has in the United States. And just like with the United States, 
Britain has been struggling to deal with it and struggling to get rid of the illegal migrants that are already here in the United States. A lot of that is to do with a left-wing liberal government. Here in the UK, I think it's to do with a lack of courage uh, from the government to, to kind of deal with the problem. But uh, even now, as they're starting to deal with the problem, they're very quickly finding their hands tied uh, by a foreign court. The latest on this this week uh, to do it all revolves around the government's kind of latest plans to deal with this, where you know, instead of allowing all these migrants in, and then there's so much quote unquote human rights legislation around that migrants can spend years appealing different rulings. By the time the government, they've exhausted all of their appeals, it's finally ready to deport them. They've also had plenty of time to go missing. Uh, and then they're here in the United Kingdom for good. So the government's plan has been to take all the migrants straight or a certain percentage of the migrants straight to Rwanda. They've done a deal with Rwanda. They'll come and it's kind of like, okay, well, you say that you are refugees, that you're fleeing for, for your life because of political persecution or something like that. Well, we can take you to be safe in Rwanda. You don't, you don't have to stay here. It seems a pretty sensible uh, plan to me in a whole, in many ways. So, uh, that's the idea. The first plane was due to take off, taking people over to Rwanda this week. And then the European Court of Human Rights stepped in and at the last minute blocked this flight from taking off, blocked every single or basically said no migrants could be deported in this way. So this new plan, uh, you know, from the UK is just an attempt to cut through all the problems with migration. And and some have tried to frame it as just a skirmish between Britain's political parties. But really, the way the European Court of Human Rights stepped in and ruled on this, it actually is, extends far beyond political scuffles and raises much bigger questions, like a very fundamental one, who really runs Britain? Right. And I think, you know, I think in some ways, Britain's human rights law is broken. You know, if you have a human rights law that prevents a criminal from being deported because his right to his family life means that he can live in Britain with his cat, but it's also fine for a government to put an entire country under house arrest because of a disease that 99.9% .9 of healthy people survive, you know, something is very broken with your human rights law. Uh, really, the solution here is to kind of to, to deal with that. I don't think the government is strong or courageous enough to do that. Uh, so the Rwanda idea is a bit of a workaround. It's to try and get around all of all of these human rights, quote unquote, handcuffs that get put on the government and stop them from dealing properly with with problems. And it worked as far as domestic law was concerned. This was appealed very quickly to all levels of UK courts. It went all the way up to the UK Supreme Court. They all were fine with these flights, despite some very highly paid lawyers trying to stop them. Uh, so in theory, the highest authorities within the United Kingdom were okay with this. And then a foreign court comes in and stops it. So... You know, this is a case of well, who ultimately at the end of the day, who has power here? Is it the prime minister? Is it the government? Is it parliament? Is it the courts? Well, it seems like the highest authority is this European Court of Human Rights. The Daily Mail, uh, I think, right, rightly set this up with with the big picture, saying at, at stake is nothing less than the question of who runs Britain. Are we still a democratic and sovereign nation whose elected representatives makes our make our laws and 
can be cast out by us when things go wrong? Or are we ever to be subject to the arbitrary impulses of a court of foreign judges over whom we have no say? And you know, you might be sitting there thinking, but I thought Britain left the EU. You know, we've made a big deal about Brexit. Uh, we've talked a lot about it on this show over many, many years. How is this still happening? And I think this just really highlights one of the quotes that we kept coming back to throughout the Brexit process by Herbert W. Armstrong, where he wrote uh, back in the 70s that he, well, he wrote, Britain is going to look back on Monday, January 1st, 1973, in all probabilities as the most tragic historic date, a date fraught with ominous potentialities. For that date marked the United Kingdom's entry into the European community. It's a great phrase, ominous potentialities. You know, he saw this was going to do a lot of damage to Britain. And a lot of that damage is hard to reverse. Uh, and backing out of the European Union is just, it doesn't necessarily undo instantly all of the damage and all of those ominous potentialities that have been inflicted by the Britain's membership of the European Union. And the European Court of Human Rights is an example of that. So the European Court of Human Rights is something that is kind of semi-detached from the European Union, maybe a better way to put it. It's Heritage is separate from the European Union. It was set up separate from the European Union. However, the European Union is kind of built on it, has brought it into a number of different European treaties and has kind of used the European Court of Human Rights as conditions for EU membership and this kind of thing. So it, it is something that has been slowly embraced and even to a certain extent engulfed by the European Union. So Britain left the European Union uh, but by remaining part of the Council of Europe, it remained under the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights. And by virtue of being based in and around a whole lot of European institutions, by virtue of doing business with these institutions, working with these institutions, a lot of the European Union kind of way of thinking, way of, way of working is rubbed off on the European Court of Human Rights. And so they have... They, they remain a tool for European control over Britain, even though we have left the EU. What uh, what literature would you recommend for listeners who would like to understand this in the context of, you know, Bible prophecy and those ominous potentialities and everything else that Mr. Armstrong said about it? Well, I think there are a, you know, there's a couple of trends here. Uh, one is just the subject of migration, which I just had a look. I think one of the most recent articles we had on that as far as the U.S. is concerned is drug cartels take charge of border from April 7th by Andrew Miller. Uh, and at the end there, he goes through some of even there's very specific Bible prophecies about having problems with migration and foreigners coming into your country into this end in, you know, in, in, in time Bible prophecy. So he there's a lot of very specific prophecies being fulfilled there and seeing all of the problems that migration causes. And then also, of course, this break from the European Union is, is very prophetic. We have a Trends article, Why the Trumpet Watches the UK's Break from Europe. Uh, and that will kind of give you the long view in terms of uh, this Brexit process and why we watch that. Both of these stories, both of those aspects, very specific fulfillments of Bible prophecy and just really powerful confirmations that uh, uh, the Bible is a very relevant book for us now and, and has a lot to say about world conditions and, and our own lives and problems that we're going through. 
We will leave links to both of those in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. For the next story, we'll take a look at Iran. It seems like just about every week lately, there's been a notable development in Iran's illegal pursuit of nuclear weapons. And this week was no exception. Just yesterday, news broke of a new network of tunnels being built to house a massive enrichment facility. For this, we'll go to Brent Noctegal. Yeah, you're right. Over the past few weeks, we've been talking about Iran's nuclear program, and this is definitely something we need to keep our eyes on. Uh, This story this week on June 16th, just yesterday, was released by the New York Times and was picked up everywhere else, detailing this uh, massive uh, underground facility that's being constructed near Natanz. Another one of its nuclear facilities is is above ground there. Uh, We know of of a... um, another underground uh, facility in Fordow. Uh, this one is in the process of being constructed and it looks like it won't be fully uh, operational for a year or so. Um, so there is a little bit of time, I, I suppose, uh, before it becomes fully functional, but it definitely reveals the way that Iran is is trying to make it seem, and I think accurately so, uh, that they are trying to make their nuclear weapons program outside the reach of 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 weaponry particularly by israel this this site it's really big uh it's under a mountain that um israeli uh aircraft with the bombs that israel has would not be able to penetrate it i think the united states they assume or estimate still might be able to destroy uh, this this facility uh with some of its weaponry however israel is is going to be you know without an option here by itself and and so the new york times reporting this uh, this was a, a leak that was given to the new york times as these stories tend to be um from israeli officials and also american officials and so it was time to go public with the knowledge that iran is constructing this um we'll see whether it has effect on the near term to on on i think the united states um population i think that's kind of the intended audience with this that look what iran's doing they are doing something that shows that they want a nuclear shows they want a nuclear program are we willing to accept a new nuclear deal is the population willing to accept a new nuclear deal that could curtail uh construction on this site perhaps that might be part of the deal and so i don't really see it as something that the united states is is out there reporting and because they they want to show Iran as as although they believe in a military strike on Iran, I think this is something that they're showing uh, the, the the population and, and the U.S. about because this kind of might encourage uh, popular support for a renewed nuclear deal. So. One interesting thing I notice about this story is uh, a bit of the daylight that we're seeing between the Israeli response to the news and the American response. Israel's deeply alarmed by it, but the Biden administration seems to say it's no big deal. Yeah, and it was first released, I think, this information in a, in a speech that Benny Gantz gave the defense minister of Israel over a month ago, and he mentioned he had like a sentence or two about this facility, and it kind of shocked American is and and uh, some other Israelis that he was going to go public with it. I mean, the Americans and Israelis have been watching them construct this for the past few months. Um, even as late as a year ago, they had begun it. And so uh, why now? Um, I think because Israel came out and said that they were they were going to that they 
that this existed. Even this article from the New York Times is interesting because it talks about how there is a, a vast difference between the way that the Israelis are viewing the facility and American intelligence is viewing the facility. Israel fully believes it's going to house and is an enrichment facility, meaning that they will be able to create the, the weapons grade uranium in a facility that can't be touched by Israelis. Uh, Americans are saying that it's probably some type of uh, facility for um, configuring uh, some of the nuclear infrastructure, putting together parts, uh, things like that. Israel is more like you don't build that underneath a massive mountain unless it's something that they don't want you to get, be able to touch. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's both. There's two elements here. You do have the daylight that's being seen between Israel and the United States. Um, but I think the biggest story here. Again, we always want to come back to Iran is has a nuclear weapons program and they are trying to make it untouchable for the West. And the best that a new nuclear deal right now is going to do is delay Iran's legal ability to create nuclear weapons till 2030. So that's the that's the best thing the Biden administration could do. And they might be they might be leaking these stories now to try and get a bit of momentum behind such a renewed nuclear deal. At least it buys us six years. You know, the last one was at least it buys us 15 years. And now it's going to be at least it buys us six years. Um, of course, I think we recognize, and as Mr. Flurry's written for quite some time, this administration, as with the Obama administration, they did not seek to stop Iran's nuclear weapons program. They legitimized it. They said that you can have a, a, a legal nuclear weapons program just in a few years. And so Iran says, well, if you're willing to give it, us, give it to us then, we, we can see that we have a great negotiating position to get what we want out of use to start pushing for it now. And that's what we see taking place uh, in Iran. Could you remind the listeners of why Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons poses such a serious threat and why it's uh, so significant in light of Bible prophecy? Yes, we, we do talk about this often. I think it bears repeating how Iran is is a is a power unlike any other to hold nuclear weapons. I suppose you could throw in North Korea, a little bit of a crazy crazy power that that uh, would be willing to use them, um, not fearing too much retribution. Iran definitely doesn't fear retribution from using nuclear weapons, and so they would be a a member of the nuclear club that we don't see. They believe in. Uh, the leadership of Iran, not all of Iranians, but definitely the leadership of Iran believes in Twelverism. They believe that the 12th Imam will appear, their mess messianic figure, when world chaos is caused. And so nuclear weapons are a godsend to the Iranians that believe in this fanatical um, ideology. So there's that. There's also the biblical prophecies that that talk about how Iran is going to push the world towards war, specifically push at the Europeans. And a nuclear weapon program um, and a nuclear weapon itself gives the ability for Iran to push back uh, or push, sorry, initiate pushing in a very um, provocative foreign policy, uh, exp expanding its territory, expanding its powers over other uh, Middle Eastern states. And with the threat to others that says, if you counteract us, if you go against us, we have nuclear weapons and we're not afraid to use them. And so it makes Iran a much more formidable international player 
a much more dangerous player, a much more uh, a player that you have to think twice about before you attack, just in case they nuke you, because they're not scared of your response if you nuke them back. And this is the type of, of personality that the Bible places, that the Bible says Iran will fulfill. This is the type of foreign policy they have. And that's found in Daniel 11 and verse 40. It talks about this king of the South with this pushy foreign policy. Mr. Gerald Flurry writes about this, particularly in its pursuit of nuclear weapons in his book, Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door. I think it's something that, that people should definitely go ahead and read. We will leave a link to Nuclear Armageddon is at the Door in the show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Brent. We'll take a look now at the United States, where the Federal Reserve has just taken a considerably more aggressive swing at the country's red-hot inflation. For this, we'll turn it over to Andrew Miller. Yeah, this has been expected for a while, but the Federal Reserve finally met this week and announced that it was rising interest rates. And it actually announced that it was raising the interest rates by three quarters of a percent. And so, I mean, that's a huge spike, uh, biggest spike since 1994, raising it all at once. And uh, <clears throat> a lot of people who really follow economics are uh, will see right off the bat uh, just how big of news this is for those who um, uh, don't follow as closely. We'll, we'll break it down. Basically, what the Fed's trying to do with this is fix the inflation problem. The inflation problem started after the COVID lockdowns because, uh, quite logically, you locked down the economy. A lot of people couldn't go to work. A lot of stuff wasn't being made. In order to keep things going, the government did all these stimulus checks. You diluted the value of money. You print more dollars. All dollars are worth less. Uh, created an inflation crisis, and so now in order to stop it and get the prices to stabilize, you're trying to pull your money back out of the system. Right. Uh, and so by increasing the interest rates, it makes it that if you want to buy a house now, you're going to pay 6% interest. If you want to buy a car, you're probably going to pay a bit more than that. If it's a used car, uh, credit card loans go, uh, go up. Basically, all form of lending go up. So people have to start spending less, which will theoretically bring the uh bring the inflation down now not right away it could take months could even take years uh to get the inflation back down to to two percent uh jerome powell he's the uh the chairman of the federal reserve he's he's pretty confident he says that there's going to be a soft landing we're going to just keep raising the rates uh over the course of the year till the inflation gets back down to two percent and uh and hopefully not tip the economy into a recession in the meantime now granted realize when he says this that this is the the same guy who said that printing uh billions and trillions of dollars of stimulus money wasn't going to cause inflation in the first place and so like i said it's it's unlikely we're probably in a recession already uh we'll know next month when they release the q <laughs> the results but if there's two quarters of negative growth uh in a row it's a recession or probably in a recession already. If they continue with this plan, it'll probably push the nation into depression because businesses are not going to be spending money. They're going to be saving it because of these high interest rates um, in order to probably bring that inflation down. And so you are kind of in a catch 22 situation due to mistakes the government made in the COVID crisis or, or maybe not mistakes, maybe, maybe even a, uh, deliberate sabotage of the economy during covid that you're you now kind of have to choose between really high interest rates and a recession to bring the inflation down 
or a growing economy, but inflation that's out of control. Yeah. So these are, you know, some sobering developments to be living through and uh, seems like things could get worse quickly. And it calls to mind one of the big warnings that Mr. Herbert Armstrong delivered back in, uh, I think it was the year 1980. Yeah. In 1980, he, he, Mr. Armstrong published an article. He said, prepare to greatly reduce your standard of living. And I'll, I'll read a couple excerpts from that article here. It says, it's time you knew the real meaning of the, pl- of the present inflationary spiral, the rising interest rates, and the fears of entering a severe depression. This is far more than all the economic concerns that appear on the surface. Its roots even penetrate back into ancient history and biblical prophecy. What does it really mean? What does it pretend for the relatively immediate future? We in the United States have enjoyed the most prosperous living standard of any nation in the history of mankind, and there is a reason for this unmatched prosperity that came to us. There is also a reason for the devaluation of the dollar in foreign markets, for our present abnormal inflation, and the fear in financial and government circles that we may be well at the beginning of the most severe economic depression in history. So he's talking about high interest rates. He's talking about high inflation. Uh, He's talking about the devaluation of the dollar and uh, uh, many things that people today are talking about. Uh, And if you actually are able to read the full copy of the article, it's pretty obvious that you're, you're reading someone who has a much better understanding of economics than Jerome Powell or anyone who works at the Federal Reserve today. Uh, and, and he does spend a good bit of time at the beginning of the article explaining some of these economics to people. But 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 once he gets into the meat of the article, he's saying this is a little more than just economics. Uh, he's um, pointing back to his book, The United States and Britain and Prophecy. He said, there's a reason the United States has enjoyed the most prosperous standard of living in the world, uh, and that's because the United States inherited the birthright uh, blessings God promised to uh, Jacob's uh, adopted grandson, or adopted sons, literal grandsons, uh, Ephraim and Manasseh. And there's a reason they're going away, because uh, there was a uh, America's Israelite ancestors made a covenant that if they disobeyed God, those birthright blessings would be stripped from them. And so really a lot of these economic curses are due to the fact that of like declining morality in the nation, uh, people living beyond their people living beyond their means, which uh, are being financially irresponsible, which gets into sins like 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 greed and other things like that. So so there's there's definitely moral reasons why God's taking away blessings that the Bible prophesied would come to America, uh, in addition to just the um, the discussions on interest rates and all that. And so I think we'll probably in the in our show notes put the, the chapter from our book, He Was Right, uh, entitled America's Financial 9-11 Was Prophesied. That whole book's about prophecies that uh, God made through Herbert Armstrong coming true, and that America's financial 9-11 was prophesied. Might It's it's an older article. It might be a little uh, specific to the, um, the financial class that happened in 2008, but uh, these, these things you're seeing in the headlines today over COVID setting us up for a, a much bigger financial class than happened in 2008, and even a bigger one than what Mr. Armstrong was writing about when, uh, when Carter was president. And so, uh, 
the, those prophecies he made 40 years ago, we have come we have come full circle, kind of right back to the conditions of the Carter administration, uh, and with a much higher national debt that will make the the end of it much much worse than it was even back then. America's financial 9-11 was prophesied as the name of that chapter from our free booklet, He Was Right. And we've also got an article on thetrumpet.com. It's called Your Standard of Living that really analyzes what Mr. Armstrong said on this topic. And it goes through the, uh, the prophecies that his analysis was built on as well. So we'll leave links to both of those in our show notes for today's episode. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. We'll take a quick break now. And when we come back, we'll talk about worrying changes in Germany's military, Israeli strikes on Syria, plans for a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, and the apparent hackability, if that is a word, of American voting machines. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour. The Week in Review. German leaders are looking back on the COVID pandemic and some large-scale floods that have hit Europe, and they're looking especially at Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And in response to all of this, they're making some big structural changes to their military. To tell us about this, we'll go once again to Richard. Yes, on June 13th, the uh, German defense minister, Christine Lambrecht, announced a new military command center. So this is going to uh, be used in all kinds of crises, and it's going to um, it's part of the German army's kind of structural reforms that are going on since the Ukraine crisis, uh, since, like you mentioned, some of the events of, uh, even previous to that, to change how the German army works. Uh, so they're going to, starting on October 1st, 2022, they're going to have a territorial command of the Bundeswehr, of the German army that will kind of bring together under one roof uh, a whole host of different commands and functions that are more distributed. But what is important about all of this is that it's taking something that there there have been very strict restrictions on the German army and especially on what the German army is allowed to do at home within Germany. And this new command center is part of a trend that stretches back years where those restrictions have been lifted. And I think in some ways, what's most remarkable about this is how little attention it's gotten. Even within Germany, certainly outside of Germany, I think this may well be the first news program that you're hearing about this on, for example. It's not a big story as far as most people are concerned. everyone is very relaxed about Germany eliminating some of those restrictions that were placed on it and that were placed on its constitution. So typically Germany, German troops weren't allowed to be used at home. And gradually those, those things have been loosened. Like, okay, well, uh, you know, maybe in an emergency, maybe when we've got some major flooding, now COVID's come along. So perhaps there are circumstances outside of a natural disaster where we need to be able to to have systems enforced to use troops at home uh, and so then now well now we're going to have a um, a headquarters center that can be used for emergencies abroad or at home making it much easier to have domestic uh domestic interventions by the german army 
Would you be able to place this development in the context of Bible prophecy for the listeners and let them know what they could read if they'd like to learn more about that? Yes. So one of the key prophecies that we've been, that we talk about, and it seems like it almost comes up every show, uh, is the rise of this beast power, as the Bible calls it, this empire in Europe. And Revelation chapter 17 talks about a beast power that arrives on the scene and then disappears. And it, it goes underground. And as far as everyone's concerned, uh, you know, it's dead. It calls it the beast that was and is not and yet is. It, it disappears. It comes back again. So we've seen repeated empires rise in Europe. The last one was right. It was was in World War II when Herbert W. Armstrong was on the scene, warning about it, and then it disappeared. It was not. And as far as most people are concerned, it still disappeared. Most people do not see it, but it's rising from the underground, and there are signs. Some of them much clearer. You know, signs that should have gotten people paying attention. For example, Germany's takeover of the Balkans in the early 1990s. But it's rising back up now. Most people are still oblivious, but it's uh, it's coming back to the fore. And then, if you want to go to more specifics on this particular subject, we do have an article on our website. Germany prepares to deploy at home and abroad. But just a, a critical a critical prophecy and one that we've been writing about for many years. Germany prepares to deploy at home and abroad is the name of that article by Josue Michel. So please check out our show notes for today's episode, or you can navigate over to thetrumpet.com to see that article there. Thanks very much for that, Mr. Palmer. In the first half of the program, we spoke about some Iranian facilities inside of Iran that are out of reach for the Israeli military. But in Syria, it's a different story. There are Iranian targets there that are vulnerable to Israeli airstrikes. And more came to light this week about how the Israelis conduct these strikes. To tell us about this, we'll go once again to Brent. Yeah, we talked about last week how the Damascus International Airport was put out of use by an Israeli airstrike um, just last week, last Friday morning, I think it was. And that actually still continu- continues to be an operable, an operable part of its one of its runways. Um, and so there's been so many Israeli strikes, I think, over the last two years, and they're increasingly getting attention. We can go back three or four years ago, and no one was really, to, no one in the Israeli government was talking about the strikes that they had. There were clandestine strikes. Um, but now it seems like everybody knows that Israel is having massive strikes against Syria and in particular the way that Iran smuggles weapons through Syria and into uh, and into uh, Lebanon uh, towards Hezbollah. This week we have another leak that that's coming out from the United States from former and current officials that talk about how that Israel strikes on different sites in Syria are are often discussed at length and with the United States. Often intelligence is shared between the two. Um, in particular, this is obviously something that you would you'd, you would suspect because they're allies. Um, however, we have had seen that the United States has liked to distance itself a lot from Israeli action in Syria because it because the United States becomes the target then from the Iranians. We have even seen some of that on occasion, especially at this base that's that's located in the very southeastern part of Syria, the tenth base that the United States uh, repeatedly comes under attack by the Iranians, and the Iranians have said. We're attacking you because the Israelis are attacking us. And so it, it's it's really interesting to see reports come out like this um, because it blows the cover, I think, more on uh, Israel's actions inside Syria. 
in the and it talks about how that Iran justifies its actions against Israel, its pursuit of 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 uh, ballistic missiles because of what Israel does. That's how it's reported, and so I think we're seeing this flood of stories come out, really showcasing how active Israel is in Syria. And this article blows the cover on Israeli strikes in Iraq too, buried on the third page of this leak uh, to the Wall Street Journal. It's an exclusive. It says that the U.S. military also doesn't review Israeli strikes in Iraq, which Israel hasn't officially confirmed, but U.S. officials say have occurred. This is the first I've heard of it. So buried into this is is now uh, Iraq getting into this, uh, like the United States saying that, hey, Israel's striking you as well and making that public. And so I think you have to kind of read between the lines with some of these leaks. Yes, it's just a story about how Israel has let the United States know every now and then when it's attacking something in Syria, but uh, attacking in Syria. But what it really is showing is that I think that that the United States is making it very public how active Israel is in Syria and even Iraq. And so when you see retributive attacks or you see the Iraqis get upset against the Israelis or the Syrians get upset against the Israelis or the Iranians get upset against the Israelis, you have these U.S. papers that are justified, that are potentially justifying those those future attacks based on Israeli uh, actions in these in these other states. What do you view as the uh, the main significance of this in terms of Bible prophecy? I think I think it's unsurprising that Israel is going to be attacking Iranian convoys that are sending weapons to be used against Israel across Iraq into Syria and into Lebanon. That is going to happen. I think what is more surprising, uh, or that is surprising, is that the United States is willing to discuss what Israel is up to when Israeli Israel tick typically likes the plausible deniability, meaning that we haven't made it public so the Iraqis don't have to attack us, so the Syrians don't have to attack us in some type of safe-facing, uh, face-saving measure. And th- it becomes more dangerous for Israel, I think, uh, when you have all these states, when it's becoming public knowledge that Israel is attacking all these states. Uh, I think we see this from we saw this from the Obama administration, no fan of Israel, and now we're seeing it increasingly from the Biden administration. And we've seen this from the very beginning, them showcasing to the world when Israel destroyed an Iranian floating base in the Red Sea uh, early on in the first month or two, blaming Israel for it. They're justifying retributive attacks on Israel by these states, I think, by, by blowing the cover on Israel's clandestine actions. And this is something we have we have come to expect uh, from this American administration. And why that is, I think, is discussed at length in America under attack. The Biden administration, Obama administration, they're not the typical ally of the Jewish state. In fact, they're working against the Jewish state's interests. Um, in favor of Iran and Iran's henchmen. And, and the America Under Attack has, has a lengthy part of why that is. We will leave a link in our show notes to America Under Attack. It covers the prophecies that Brent just uh, mentioned there very thoroughly. So please check out the show notes for that. Thanks very much, Brent. On Tuesday, Chinese leader Xi Jinping signed a new directive that could have some alarming implications for Taiwan. To learn about this, we'll go once again to Rafaro. Yes, on on Tuesday, as you said, President Xi signed a directive for quote-unquote non-war 
use of the military. Now, according to Chinese state media, this directive provides the legal basis for troops to carry out military operations other than war. Uh, but lots of people are worried about this. And the main reason that this directive is so worrying is because of Russia. At the outset of the Ukraine invasion, Russia didn't actually call the invasion an invasion. They called it a quote-unquote special military operation. And so this directive uh, from China is largely being viewed as paving the way for China to do exactly what Russia did, but in regards to an invasion of Taiwan. Now, while the directive itself broadly covers the military aiding in aspects such as humanitarian aid and disaster relief, it also uses some language that is pretty concerning when viewed in the context of Taiwan. The directive discusses using the army in the maintenance of, quote, national sovereignty, regional stability, and also regulating and implementing non-war military operations, end quote. Now, this is so concerning because, you know, China views Taiwan as a breakaway province. President Xi in the past has vowed to reclaim Taiwan by any means necessary. And it, it's a matter of national pride. He's, he's seeking his third term basically on this basis. And it's a matter of personal legacy for him. And at this point, we have, you know, nearly daily Chinese incursions into Taiwanese airspace. We often report about this each time it happens uh, when there's a record incursion, which happens about every couple of months or so. And many people in Taiwan are concerned that after Ukraine, they are next. And there's every possible and there's every reason to believe that that will be the case. And uh, Trump editor-in-chief Gerald Flurry has warned that uh, a Chinese takeover of Taiwan is uh, basically inevitable at this point. That's right. Uh, he, he has a classic example, uh, a classic article called Taiwan Betrayal, which I think would be awesome to look at. And, you know, it's, it's really interesting uh, because, you know, China is following pretty much the same blueprint that Russia took in its invasion of Ukraine. Um, but significantly, I think, all of this is about a hallmark prophecy that uh, Christ himself gave in Luke 21, verse 36, about uh, a new era coming upon the world, the times of the Gentiles. And uh, Mr. Joe Flurry has written about this as well. He has an article called, What are the Times of the Gentiles? Uh, in which he explains how in the Bible, Gentiles are presented in contrast to the Israelites while end-time Israelites are, uh, you know, the United States and Britain primarily today, Gentiles refer to the non-Israelite peoples, peoples like China, people like Russia. And prophecy shows that while the Israelite nations are in decline, which is clear for everyone to see today, Gentile powers such as China are going to be dominant. And, you know, what this, era, what this era is all about is, you know, so many people doubted Russia would invade Ukraine. You know, such a 20th century style land grab uh, wasn't thought to be possible in our modern world, but it happened. And Bible prophecy indicates that it's going to get worse. And we really need to watch Taiwan as well to, to be the next example of that. It's very uh, close uh, to, to that happening. So I would suggest for everyone to read Mr. Flurry's article uh, what are the times of the Gentiles? It really would give a full picture of just what this coming era is going to be all about. 
Yeah, it, it really is alarming to see China taking, you know, a page right out of Vladimir Putin's playbook here. Um, and it certainly gives us a lot to keep a close eye on. We will leave links in our show notes to the article Taiwan Betrayal and also What Are the Times of the Gentiles, both of those by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. Thanks very much for that, Rafaro. For our final story of the show today, we'll look at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency here in the United States and a new advisory that they've just published about voting machines. For this, we'll go back to Andrew. Yeah, if anyone's been watching the January 6 hearings, they probably heard testimony from the former Attorney General uh, Bill Barr about how uh, demoralized he became when discussing allegations of voter fraud regarding Dominion voting machines with President Donald Trump. Uh, apparently, President Trump took the allegations that Dominion voting machines were hacked to steal the election uh, very seriously, and uh, and Bill Barr thought that was pretty ridiculous. But the uh, interesting timing is while that's going on this week, the United States Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Agency has uh, finally published an advisory uh, admitting that they have discovered nine flaws in the software of Dominion voting machines that would enable uh, any hacker with physical access to the machine or, or, or even uh, online access to uh, the software the machine's running on to hack the results of the election. Now, the, the cybersecurity agencies, not, they're not saying that happened, but they're saying it could have happened, uh, which is, or it's possible that it could happen, which is a, a big change from the, uh, its previous stance uh, from like 18 months ago saying this is the most secure election in U.S. history. There's really no way, uh, there's really no way these machines could have been hacked. And now they're saying, well, actually, there's, there's about nine ways uh, these machines could have been hacked which is, um, yeah, definitely a, a big change in, in, in their tone. And, uh, and those who are familiar with, uh, with Dr. Uh, Peter Navarro's report, uh, he's uh, chronicled over 136,000 voting machine irregularities in Georgia, uh, almost 200,000 voting machine irregularities in Michigan, uh, and over 143,000 voting machine regularities in Wisconsin. The Michigan's one's the most famous. That's if you've ever seen that logo, the logo with the fraud, where they, they actually make the F shape from the graph of the Antrim, Antrim County voting results, mm -hmm. where all of a sudden, like, the graph's trending up, trending up for Biden, Trump's a little ahead, Trump's a little ahead, and all of a sudden at, like, 6.30 in the morning, there's just this spike straight up. Uh, and Biden laps Trump and like, well, that's really weird to just to just like a hundred thousand people like simultaneously cast a ballot at six thirty five uh, in order to have Biden win this one county, which was actually pretty key in him winning the entire state. Um, yeah. And so you took it you look at those graphs seriously is like there's actually uh, there's actually pretty good evidence that not only is there nine ways you could hack those machines, but there are certain counties, Antrim County in Michigan being one of them, uh, and then some others in both Wisconsin and Georgia that uh, could have had enough hacking to steal the election in those three states for Biden using Dominion voting hacking alone. That would be in, uh, and that hacking would have, that fraud would have been in addition to the, uh, the mail-in ballot fraud 
that uh, Dinesh D'Souza and the 2000 Mule documentary and others are talking about. And so um, it, it's like your grandma probably told you never put your eggs in one basket. If if any of our listeners ever uh, decide they want to steal an election, it's like you never try to steal it using all one method. It's too easy to catch. You got to do a little bit one way, a little bit another way, a little bit another, a little bit of voter fraud, a little bit of mail-in ballot fraud, a little bit of dead people voting. You do it like 12 different ways and it, it takes a while. <laughs> to uncover they're they're uncovering it now but like i said it's been about 18 months before you're starting to get a really good grasp on how this on how they on how the democrats stole this uh, election so andrew you uh you wrote an article about this new advisory um that'll be up on the trumpet.com soon it's called america's top Cybersecurity agency admits voting machines are hackable could you talk a little bit about the points that you made in the conclusion of that uh, just about sort of the big picture of these developments. Yeah, well, I think we'll put that article in the in the show notes uh, as well as the article from our editor in chief. Uh, what will happen after Donald Trump returns to power? Uh, but that's basically going through uh, going through prophecies. It seems like we we discuss every week on this show, or at least every other week, uh, about Second Kings fourteen verse twenty six and twenty seven, and Amos seven verses eight through nine. That God talks about God sparing the end time nations of Israel one last time, uh, and saving them uh, through the hand of a uh, of an end time uh, antitype of the ancient King Jeroboam the uh, second, who Mr. Flory identifies as Donald Trump, and so we're definitely uh, expecting. Uh, Donald Trump to return to office and, and even lead a, a bit of a resurgence in America, and that will likely involve some pretty massive exposure of how the last election was stolen. And so, with those uh, with those prophecies in mind, the fact that the uh, <laughs> United States government is now admitting that there's nine different ways to hack an a Dominion voting machine uh, could be uh, could be quite significant. We will leave a link in our show notes to that article, What Will Happen After Donald Trump Returns to Power, and also to Andrew's article, America's Top Cybersecurity Agency Admits Voting Machines Are Hackable. So you'll be able to find those in our show notes for today's program, and you'll see links there to all of the other articles and other literature items that we've discussed on today's program. That's on thetrumpet.com. Well, we are coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. You can send any questions or comments that you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. And thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Rafaro Manyepa, Mr. Richard Palmer, and Brent Noctegal. And we'll leave you today with these words from Confucius. Those who know the truth are not equal to those who love it. Thank you for joining us on Trumpet Hour. Until next time, keep watching your world. been listening to Trumpet Hour on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Understand your world.